Well, hey, good morning to you. Welcome to Citadel Square if you're new. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? It was it good? What did you do, turkey? Probably everybody. My daughter said, we should do ham. We said, we don't do ham at Thanksgiving. That's not what we do. We do turkey. Uh, well, if you're new, hey, uh, why don't you grab a Bible, if you got one, and find the book of Malachi, the very last book in your Old Testament. As you're turning there, uh, I want to give thanks for Ben Miller uh, stepping in here last week, preparing and sharing. Didn't he do a good, do a good job? Didn't he? Did He did. He did. Let me just, I'll reiterate something that AJ said last week, that uh, our real heart with our pastoral residency is to train the next generation of men to be able to handle the word, to make disciples, and to push the kingdom forward. Uh, my wife and I, if you, don't, if you don't know, my wife and I have six children. That's half a dozen. And uh, one of the ways that uh, we really feel called personally in ministry is to invest in this next young adult generation, which is what we're doing through our pastoral ministry. Because we have teenagers now who very soon will need men and women in their lives to be able to carry on and to teach God's word to them, which is why my wife leads a group of ladies through the word, which is why we invest in the pastoral residency here, that we might be able to continue to invest in that next generation of men and women to be able to handle the word accurately, to share the gospel, to make disciples, and to have an influence in this coming generation. So I was greatly impacted by a pastor who gave me the opportunity to learn and grow and get sharpened in my skills so that I do what I do here today. Uh, as a result of many men in my history who were willing to bring me alongside to teach me, to train me, and to give me the skills to be able to make an impact on that next generation to follow. So that's in our DNA here as a church at Citadel Square. If you are a man who feels called to pastoral ministry, you go find A.J. Rankin. A.J., lift your hand up in the back. Big man, bald in the back. He will talk to you about getting your life together. Uh, and um, what it means for you to step into ministry. If you feel called in that way, you talk to AJ and we'll get you uh, connected here with what we want to do really for, the, for as long amount of time as God gives us to pour into this next gener generation of men and pastors, train them up, send them out. So that's our ambition. Uh, if you want to give to that, if you're encouraged by what you see in the lives of these uh, pastoral residents, you can always give to them and encourage them in that way. But uh, shake Ben's hand, uh, give him some encouragement. He's not here today, so anything that you say by clapping, he will not void his reward in heaven. All right, so feel free. Uh, all right, enough on that. Uh, we move here in Malachi really to the second half of the book. And this is an interesting place to turn in the book. We'll move today into chapter 3 and chapter 4. And chapter 3 and chapter 4 start to turn. And what we've seen up, in, up until this point in the book of Malachi are the, the apathy of the people and the arguments that come up as a result of being confronted by Malachi. Malachi has handled all sorts of things. Their perspective on God, their perspective on their marriages, the spirit spiritual leaders, the uh, defiling sacrifices that the people are bringing. And I think what you've noticed, I talked to a man last week in our church who had been saying, boy, what I'm really learning in the book of Malachi is that Malachi has a lot to do with what and who and how we worship. And I said, I think you're right on the money there. So a lot of what Malachi has been doing has been confronting the perspectives and thoughts that God's people have. As a reminder, God's people have come back from exile. They're back in their land. They've restored the altar, the temple, the sacrifice is the offerings. 
They have the priesthood back in place, but they aren't doing it right. So what we're facing here as we move into the second half of this book uh, really stokes our heart for anticipation. That, that word that you see in your bulletin there about Advent, as we begin Advent, you can feel the anticipation in the room as we sing Christmas songs. Amen? You can feel the longing and the preparation of our hearts to remember and remind ourselves of the time when the second person of the Trinity came to earth in the form of a baby. Well, what we're going to see here in Malachi chapter 3 is that this idea of the Lord's coming is going to show up in a pretty explicit way in Malachi chapter 3, but it's going to show up in the context of a conversation that is something that every one of us in this room has experienced. In fact, this topic that we're going to look at here in Malachi chapter 3 is perhaps one of the most viscerally affecting topics that you and I will ever experience. It's the thing that we see when we look out into our culture, when we read the paper. When we, does anybody read the paper anymore? Uh, see, okay, five of you read the paper still. When you read the internet, when you um, when you look out at the news in our culture and day and time, that the advent, the coming of the Lord, is going to is going to be explained in the context of injustice. Have there been things this year that you've seen in the news that cause you to say in your heart, "It not ought to be that way." Are there things that you see in the news today that causes your heart to twist and to turn and to grieve over the fact that the world is the way it is? When you get cut off, when you're driving, and you think to yourself, oh God, you pray those imprecatory psalms, God hit them with a bus in Jesus' name, may their tires explode and careen into a ditch safely, but just enough so that they need to total the car. <laughs> See, preaching is all about timing. All about timing. You got to get your timing right. Thank you. I don't know who it was over there. I don't want to know. We won't give you your rewards in heaven. We'll let that, we'll let the Lord honor you at a later time. No matter who you are, no matter what you've seen, no matter the stories that you've been through in your life, whether your family upbringing, your workplace, your school, you know what it means to see, and many of you, what it means to experience injustice. To see people profit in illicit and ungodly and wicked ways. For power to be on the side of the oppressor that oppresses those who are weak and vulnerable and have no recourse. And that for us, when we gather at Christmas time and we remember the time when Jesus came as a child, we remember the advent and his coming. A lot of the Old Testament points to the time when God will address the wickedness and the evil of this world by his coming. So Malachi chapter 3 begins to deal with the struggles of a people who continue to see injustice, who have this weight upon their hearts that says it ought not to be this way. And for many of us, while we walk through life, I think we all have a temptation to do this, I have a temptation to do this, that we tend to live lives of somewhat practical atheism, or if not atheism, just deism, where we, deism is a, a statement that God is up there, but he's not really involved. He kind of set the whole thing spinning, but he doesn't really engage. He can't really pray to him. He has principles and rules by which the world operates, but he's not involved. 
And while we may operate many times in that life, when we experience injustice and it happens to us, we get very theistic very fast, don't we? We react and we respond by saying, I'm hurting and there's pain and this is hard and they are evil and wickedness has come into my life and it shouldn't be this way. God, where are you? What are you doing? What is happening? And it's into that emotional, visceral, injustice struggle that Malachi is going to speak to God's people in this passage. And, and in a very real sense, it, it helps us as New Testament Christians who are faithful and who are hoping in Christ, not just to come once, but to come again, to remind ourselves of this Christmas season, to say anticipation for the coming of Christ is just as real in 2023 as it was in the year before Christ was born. That we still feel anticipation. We still long for God to come and to set things right. And that's what Malachi chapter 3 is about. So, would you pray with me? And we'll jump in here together in Malachi chapter 3. Father, we pause for just a minute to confess that um, the injustice that we see in the news, the injustice that some in this room have certainly experienced in a room this size, stokes our heart and longing. It causes us to respond and to react emotionally. That there are some in this room, no doubt, who feel the emotional weight of injustice, that he should not have done that, and she should not have done that to me. So, Father, I pray as that we get into a text like this that is filled with such an emotional topic as injustice, that your word would blow away the emotion, that you would give great clarity and comfort, that as we as a people in 2023 tune our hearts to the anticipation that is associated with this season that we would be reminded again of your goodness, of your faithfulness to us, of the unchanging holiness and righteousness that describes who you are. So Father, as we wrestle through these things, we pray for great grace. We pray for your insight. We pray that we would understand more of who you are as we look into your word. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, well, you see how this picks up here in Malachi chapter 2. The very last verse of Malachi, if you're looking at Malachi chapter 2 and chapter 3, the very last verse of chapter 2 leads us into the next discussion, the next uh, dispute between God's people and Malachi. And it starts here in, in verse 17. It'll take us here into about chapter 3, verse 6 is where we're going to be today. So take a look at Malachi 2, verse 17. Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, Malachi, through the course of this book, has been exposing a lot of the cultural belief system of his day. He hasn't just looked at the explicit worship that's been happening, but he's been trying to get at the attitudes He's been trying to get at sort of the cultural, religious, social assumptions of his day. And to do that, you need a good preacher. You need a prophet who comes and says, thus says the Lord, here's what you've been saying, here's what you've been thinking. Don't you hate it when the Bible does that? That the Bible has a way of blowing away a lot of the hypocrisy and secrecy and kind of con unspoken conversation and unspoken belief systems that live just below the surface of our lives. 
where many of us will view God a certain way and until we're actually confronted with what the Bible has to say about God, we won't examine those beliefs. For many of us and the experiences that we've had, they've shaped how we view the Lord. And until we have God's word to specifically explain and blow away a lot of our experiences and circumstances, we have a hard time understanding who God is and what he's doing. And what we're introduced to here, the very beginning of this this dispute, is that we're introduced to God's emotional life. Now, we look at a passage like this, and it says, well, you've wearied the Lord with your words, and we, we wouldn't go all the way to say that God gets tired as if God has his hands on his knees as his people continue to pepper him with, with prayers and questions. But it's a way that Malachi says that you're testing the patience of God. And when we have a God who is unchanging, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we don't also at the very same time have a God who is merely sovereign and distant, but we have a God who is near and emotionally engaged with his creatures. He's emotionally engaged with you. He's emotionally engaged to the fullest and purest sense with the things that you struggle with and the things that you say and the perspectives you have, that we are in an active and real relationship with God. We don't just come to God's word and get biblical data and begin to live our lives, but we are in a give and take kind of relationship with God. We have real sins, real fears, real struggles, and God as a real good God, a personal God, can engage with his creatures who are in process. And that should comfort us. Anybody have perfect theology here this morning? You totally see God exactly the way he wants you to see him? No, I don't either. We're all in process. And God, because he is sovereign and unchanging, at the very same time, engage with his people who are in process. He can engage with us when we face emotionally difficult and hard situations. Is that good news? That we have a God who's, who's emotional with us. But at the very same time, it goes both ways, that our relationship has an impact. The words that we say have an impact on God, that we, have a, we don't change him, but he exists in relationship with us so that these passages for us in Malachi are very instructive to see the kind of things that you can pray to God and wrestle with God over. What do you think? Can you take your concerns about injustice and wrestle with God in prayer over those things? Of course. That's how God has designed it. He's designed to be engaged with his people. So there's no better illustration of this than Jesus when he lets Lazarus die. That Jesus remains with his disciples. He allows his good friend Lazarus to die. And in John chapter 11, he comes to the place where Lazarus has been in the tomb multiple days. And both Mary and Martha wrestle with Jesus. Not literally, but uh, that just came to my mind. They... Uh, they, they emotionally engage with Christ over the fact that, Lord, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. Lord, if you were here, you could have prevented death. If you were here and you really loved him, you could have done something. And Jesus, in his tenderness and his compassion, his emotional availability and engagement with these women and really the entire crowd, not only reorients their theology, but he fully engages emotionally in the fact that there are real mourners facing real death who stand around a real tomb. And, and the weight of that moment is bearing upon his soul so much that he weeps with them. It doesn't excuse his power. 
but he's engaged with his people. And this Malachi begins this by saying that God is wearied by the things that you are saying. That your perspective on God is testing his patience. So, in typical fashion, the remainder of Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, the people are ignorant. Aren't you getting tired of the people being ignorant? I don't understand. I don't get it, is how it feels to me when I read that. Well, how have we wearied you? The word for weary can mean labor or toil to expend energy. But it's worth it for us to ask, what are the kind of words and conversations and perspective that test God's patience? Have you ever prayed stupid prayers? I've prayed stupid prayers. I've prayed things that were so dumb, that were so ah-theological, that I feel like God was up there going like, really? Don't you? Really? That's what you're... And I think in part that it's important for us just to examine for ourselves how often do we pray to a God that is not actually the God of the Bible? How often do our perspectives get affected by our circumstances and struggles and families and kids so that we pray to God and we go, God, where are you? What are you doing? I don't know what's happening. And in part, I think that's where these people are. So they're ignorant. Their experiences and their whatever's happening in their culture at this time has more to say to them about God and more to influence their perspective on their theology than actually God's revelation does. So look at the remainder of the, of the verse there. You think it's possible that our experiences, our circumstances can affect our prayer life? that can affect our, our actual theology of the things that we say and believe about God. Well, look at, here's what they're saying. Here's what they're saying that tests God's patience. The remainder of the verse says this. Here's what they say. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in, in them. Now, there are two statements that are going to be made in tandem, and they both work together because they're connected. If you ask one, you'll ask the other because we're logical creatures. We understand reasoning. Malachi understands reasoning, and he says these two questions go together. Number one, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So let's take them one at a time. Here's the first one. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. God, your standards are warped. You treat the wicked and the evil the very same way. So much so, Lord, that it seems that you're so passive in responding to the good and the evil that we can only assume by what we see in the circumstances we are in that you delight in evil and wicked men. Now that's a pretty serious accusation, isn't it? It's an accusation against the Lord. The Lord, you don't have any standards. You don't have any opinion on how people act and what they think and what they say and what they do and what is happening in our culture and what's happening in our society. And in fact, I don't see you doing anything to show that you would show anything other than just delight in the wicked. Now, if you think this is isolated to Malachi chapter 3, let me read to you here from Psalm 73. When does this temptation usually show up? Do you know when this temptation shows up for me to ask these kind of questions, to make these kind of statements? Is when I see people succeed through illicit means. When I see the wicked actually succeed financially, relationally, influentially. When I see the wicked through illicit and wicked means get ahead in their career and accomplish things that I wish I could have accomplished. 
And it makes you ask, I don't, where's God? Shouldn't he be involved? How is it this person is so successful and at the same time so corrupt? Multiple biblical characters deal with this tension. In fact, almost all the way through the Bible, you can't find a story that doesn't deal with injustice of some kind and a longing for God to make things right. Here's what Asaph, the psalmist, says in Psalm 73. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Isn't that a great illustration? How do you want to look at Christmas? Fat and sleek. (laughs) They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. I mean, uh, let's be honest. Wouldn't you like the world to work like when that person cuts you off, their tires explode? When that person says that wicked thing, you know, that digit falls off, their tongue falls out. That many, for, for many of us, that when we experience injustice and we experience the wicked getting ahead, we go, we, we want somebody to hold them accountable. We want God to do something. And that leads inevitably to the second question where they ask, where is the God of justice? See, where is the God of justice is a question that has to do with timing, isn't it? Ecclesiastes 8 says, because the judgment against a wicked deed is not carried out swiftly, the heart of man is fully set to do evil. Because the issue is not just that the wicked succeed, it's that the the wicked succeed continually. That they keep finding success in the work that they're doing. And one of the struggles that we have for all of us is that when injustice is committed, when the, is that we find that there is a long lag between crime and consequences, isn't there? And in the middle time, we can easily ask this question. Where is the God of justice? See, the end of this line of thinking really leads us to the fact that all morality is relative, doesn't it? If God could stop it, why didn't he? Where was he? Why didn't he do anything? Why have I had to experience this? Why has this element of suffering come into my life? Doesn't God care that I'm the victim of this kind of injustice, this difficulty, this hardship? What is he doing? It must not matter. God doesn't care. God's not here. All morality is relative. Get yours. Achieve whatever you want by any means necessary because God's not in heaven. He's not involved and he's not going to say anything. And that thread is out there. And I totally understand it. And listen, the Bible understands it too. The Bible sees that gap between crime and consequences as one of the major temptations for someone who knows and follows God. It's that I can't make God do anything and I'm left really a victim of the timing of this situation. Where is the God of justice? Habakkuk puts it like this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? 
Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That's Habakkuk chapter 1. So there's no small amount of biblical literature that wrestles with the idea of justice. That wrestles with perceived injustices that are never addressed. And when God says, watch this, when God says, your words have wearied me, the reason the words have wearied him is that they have a misunderstanding of who God is. Because they have called his character into question. And to perpetually assault God with, you're not here, you don't care, you don't see, and you treat the evil as good is to test the very patience of God. So how's God going to respond? What is God going to say to his people who are wrestling in the midst of injustice? Look at verse 1. Here we are. Malachi 3, verse 1, behold, which is a pay attention, or anytime you have behold in the Bible, it's a pay attention. Look, pay attention, listen up, I've got something to say. Behold, I send my messenger. Now, the next several verses are going to put together two biblical characters. One is the messenger, and the other will be the Lord himself. But the first one that we're introduced to here, the messenger, has a very particular job. God calls him my messenger, which means he has a particular role for a particular time for God's particular purposes. God's going to send someone. And there's a little bit of a, a word play here in that Malachi, Malachi's name itself means my messenger. So we're watching the messenger bring a message to the Old Testament people of God, but now in the midst of a culture that is characterized by injustice and people asking questions about God and what he's doing, we look forward to a time when another messenger comes. And look at what this messenger is going to do. It should be pretty familiar to you because this phrase is used in a very important Christmas passage that we read from time to time. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The other place that these two words, prepare and weigh, are used is over in Isaiah chapter 40. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read to you. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the messenger is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. And the dichotomy and the tension that you have in this passage is that the people have a perspective on God that is not appropriate for who God is. So what they need is a messenger. They need somebody to come with an accurate representation to get them ready to meet the one and true and only God. So we know that from Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah 40 that this leads us into the New Testament to let us know that John the Baptist is the one who fulfills Malachi 3. John the Baptist is the one who fulfills Isaiah chapter 40. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he corrects people's uh, theology about who God is. He shows them something about God that they need to know and understand. And just like in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi himself says, Behold, there's someone coming to prepare the way, to reorder your theology so that you would get a right understanding of who it is you are praying to, who it is that you are accusing of injustice. 
who it is that is wearied by the things that you are saying about him. Now you have the second character introduced here, the remainder of verse 1, and the Lord whom you seek. Isn't it interesting, you know, a lot of times when we see issues of injustice in our culture, it, it begs the fact that we have this longing, whether through politics or religious power or economic influence, is that we long for somebody to fix this thing, don't we? We long for somebody to make this thing right, to address the grievous offenses that exist in our culture. And Malachi says the same thing, the Lord or the master, the one with authority whom you seek, the one that you are, he'll say in a minute, uh, delighting in, the one who you want to come and to resolve these injustices, to fix the problems in our society, the one whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That word, that adverb for suddenly is used throughout the Old Testament biblical literature in anticipation of an event that is calamitous. When suddenly happens in the Old Testament, all sorts of things happen that are uh, great uh, and significant evidence of God's involvement. And so the messenger prepares, and this Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to this temple, and this messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the messenger of the covenant is a phrase used, I believe, of a divine figure here. And it's only used one time, and it's only used here. But have you seen in the book of Malachi how covenant has been used? That covenant has been consistently referred to that Mosaic Old Testament law, hasn't it? So the sons of Levi uh, minister to the people according to the covenant of the fathers. That Malachi looks back to the word that God gave on Mount Sinai. And here comes this individual who's called the messenger of the covenant. In whom you delight. Now, the reason I think Malachi says that with the messenger of the covenant is to tell you really two big ideas. Number one is that Malachi's culture, the Israelite Jews of their day, have looked to the Old Testament law, the Old Testament truth, to kind of bind them together as a community and give their, them a framework of their theology in terms of who God is, right? They can't have issues with injustice unless they look to a biblical record that tells them that God is justice, that God does address wickedness and evil. And their experience and their theology are getting smashed together such that they're wrestling with attention. But God affirms the fact that he will judge. There is come, someone coming who's called the messenger of the covenant who will fully enact all of the biblical truths about God and who he is. Now that's number one. But number two... When the messenger of the covenant arrives, these people at this time have had the law for 1,500 years. There's no small amount of material that these people are wrestling with. So that when the messenger of the covenant arrives, it's not going to be a new judgment. There's not going to be new information. He's going to be appealing to the fact that God has told them this for a thousand plus years. And no one is going to be able to say when the messenger of the covenant arrives, I didn't know. I wasn't sure. God hasn't said anything before. And then as if to, to stamp it with authenticity, God says it again, behold, he is coming. So God's going to address this longing in your chest for, for justice. 
God has something to say about the injustice you are currently seeing and currently experiencing and is causing tension and sandpaper in your soul over whether or not God will actually be faithful to his word. Because if we want God to address evil and handle sickness and handle injustice and handle brokenness, one of the questions that we have to wrestle with when we pray our own imprecatory prayers at people who have sinned against us is how much injustice do you want God to eradicate? How many sinful words would you like God to judge? How many selfish ambitions would you like God to hold us accountable for? And once we start asking questions like that, we get a little nervous, don't we? Because I've, I've said some things that I don't really want God to show up and judge me for right now. I've done some things that if God poured out his justice upon wickedness, I'd be in trouble. Which is what Malachi says next in verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? What's, it's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Say no one. No one. Who can stand when he appears? No one. When Jesus returns, nobody's going to be saying, get him, Jesus. I, I'm fine. Get the, get the wicked folks. Right? When G, if, if Jesus arrives and judges, and God arrives in person and judges, nobody's got a hope. And that's Malachi's point. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And look at how he describes him. For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now you might not know what a fuller was, but a fuller is a launderer. And the refiner of metal is someone who purifies the metal. So they're both images and metaphors of the purification and cleansing process that needs to happen. So when this person appears... He will refine like they refine metal. When you refine metal, you heat it up and the impurities rise to the top and they take the impurities off and you continue to refine and continue to refine until you're left with pure metal. In a similar way, when you wash clothes, you run them through. We have a child who plays baseball. You can guess which one. And if you are the mother of a baseball player, you know that clay does not treat white uniforms kindly. And there are often times where we've had to run this boy's uh, baseball pants through multiple iterations of, it's like a distillery, it's, you know, you've got to treat it with Tide and you've got to treat it with this magic soap and then you've got to treat it with a nail brush and then you've got to treat it with all the way through. And there's this refining and purifying process that happens for you to get the clay out of this boy's pants. Well, the same picture is here. And really the picture, I think, is a very important one for us just to, to meditate on. Because when God appears, he's going to change the people. The refiner's fire and the fuller soap, doesn't, you don't just set the clothes on fire, right? You know, there's no, everything's destroyed. It's interesting because you almost don't expect this person to arrive. You expect the person to arrive and eradicate the evil, but this person arrives and begins to purify. He begins to restore. He begins to wash and remove the impurities and make people who are wicked and unjust whole and restored again. 
Verse 3, he will sit. Literally, he will dwell as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Which means there's a tension to detail in this person. He's not going to quit until the job is done. He's going to refine and purify her of silver. He will purify. Watch what he purifies. You kind of expect him to come and purify the wicked, don't you? But instead, watch what Malachi says. He's going to come and purify the sons of Levi. Now, the sons of Levi, I think, in context are the spiritual leaders who are in charge of the entire worship complex that's happening among God's people. And it's as if God says, when I return, I'm going to judge the pastors first. When I return, I'm going to deal with, have the sons of Levi had some problems in this book so far? You remember that? How many problems they've had by leading the people astray and not addressing them, not teaching them the word, not teaching them how God should be approached, allowing any kind of anything they have that's a sacrifice uh, to be received by God. And everybody's surprised that God doesn't accept their sacrifices. But God says, no, now I'm going to fix these spiritual leaders. I'm going to fix the representatives of the entire spiritual system that is meant to be worshiping me purely. I'm going to purify the sons of Levi and I'm going to refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then, verse 4, here's the people. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be what? Pleasing to the Lord. What has been God's goal in the book of Malachi? The goal that God has had in dealing with the priests and his people is taking this community and restoring and redeeming and washing and purifying their worship. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. Do you remember what God's goal was? In this book already, keep your finger in Malachi 3. Go back to Malachi chapter 1 and just look at verse 11 real quick. Look at what God wanted to happen. Look at what one day will happen over all of the earth, that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Malachi 1 verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What does God want? He wants a people prepared. He wants a people purified. He wants a people who worship him in spirit and in truth. That's been his whole ambition. His whole desire is to reform the hearts and minds of his people. See, the goal that Malachi has, and God's goal in this passage here, is not merely the eradication of evil, but it's the preservation and the purification of a people who worship him truly. Isn't that good news? That he wants not just to eradicate evil, but to draw you close, to draw us close. See, see for us, when we encounter a passage like this, like, we don't encounter God's word and just rearrange some behaviors and patterns of thinking. Do you know that? That when we encounter God's word, when we gather together to hear what God would say, God has as his ambition for us to worship him purely, to see him rightly, so that our lives wouldn't just be characterized by speaking fewer sinful words and more godly words. Of not just merely 
pragmatic approaches to our spirituality so that our relationships work good and my job works fine and my career ambitions work out, but that God's word is meant to penetrate and invade our lives such that our lives are consumed with worshiping him for who he is. The whole problem in Malachi chapter 3 here is that the people don't see God correctly. And what's God doing? He's fixing their perspective. He's healing them so that they can see him rightly and respond to him well. He's purifying and restoring and drawing his people in. He's consistently refining them so that they might be totally consumed with proper and pure and true worship for who he is. This is the greatest news in this passage, that God just doesn't obliterate the people who are complaining about injustice, but he refines them and restores them and heals them in their relationship with him. Sons of Levi, then the people, then the offerings, the entire religious system is healed and whole, and then we still got to deal with the dross, we still got to deal with the dirt. Look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Now, if you're taking notes, the judgment word is the very same word that shows up in verse 17. So you would connect... Verse 17, where is the God of judgment or justice with this word right here when God says, behold, I'm coming, I will draw near to you for justice. Well, what's he going to do then after he's purified and redeemed the people and restored them and brought them into relationship with himself? Then I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. The idea of a swift witness is one that re responds accurately and clearly to the sins of the day. No hypocrisy and no secrecy will be hidden from the Lord. He will judge. It says of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 that he has eyes like a flame of fire, which means he sees everything accurately and purely, and he will judge it appropriately. Now, there's a whole litany of sins here. I'm not going to spend time on all of them. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, those that seek to uh, manipulate the physical realm through illicit spiritual means. These people are typically in a class of folks in the Old Testament with those who practice divination, who offer their children and sacrifice them on altars and seek to um, uh, commune with the dead. Number two, against the adulterers. We've already dealt with the problem of marriage in the book of Malachi two weeks ago, but those who break their marital vows will address those. Number three, those who, who uh, swear falsely. This is uh, probably in the context of person-to-person -person interactions where you would seek to defraud or deceive your neighbor, where you would have something of theirs and you would say, I don't know where it went. I'm supposed to keep track of it, but I lost it, but I really got it. So God sees all the way down to neighbor-neighbor relationships with those who swear falsely. Keeps going against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages. You abuse po folks at work, refuse to, pay, refuse to pay them what they owe, what they're due. God will address that. He'll address uh, those who will oppress the widow and the fatherless. That God's eye is upon the weak and the vulnerable in a community and he sees the injustices that are committed against them and he will take them in hand and he will judge those oppressors who seek to abuse them. Is that good news? Say amen. That's good news. That there is a defender who is strong who will address injustices that the world may never see and may totally ignore. But he will address the oppression of the widow and the fatherless. He will address the oppression of those who thrust aside the sojourner. If you want to know what the root of any and all injustice is, it's at the last part of this verse. It's that they don't fear me. 
Injustice primarily is an issue of illicit uses of power against the vulnerable. And when it happens, it typically happens because there is no authority over and above those with power. But when you observe those with significant human power, those with significant human influence in the Bible, it always seems like they, had, they run headlong into someone called God. That when Nebuchadnezzar decides to walk around his garden and say, look at the beauty of Babylon that I have made, God says, how about you eat grass like an ox for seven years? Always a key that pride is a problem. When Pharaoh says, I will, who is the Lord that I should let these people go and that they should serve him? God says, you ever heard of plagues? When Herod gets up in the New Testament and the people all applaud at his preaching and they say, the voice of God and not a man, an angel strikes him dead and he dies of worms. Another indicator that pride might be a problem in your life. But consistently through the biblical literature, God has no problem with those of great influence, great power, who use it for illicit and wicked means. So that the root of injustice is a refusal to acknowledge God for who he is and a refusal to fear him for the judgment that he may bring. This is the root of it. Now Malachi 3 verse 6, as we close, you see moves us into the next section. Do you see that? And I think Malachi 3 verse 6 is really a, a pivot verse. It leads us into dealing with money that we'll deal with last week, but it also is an explanation for what God is doing to address the bad theology of the people of the day. Now, I want you to read it, one, uh, retrospectively. I want you to read it back unto this passage, and I'll look at it next week, and we'll read it prospectively as we look into the remainder of what God's going to say. But it's an explanation of the fact that God is coming to bring judgment. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, I want you to think, in the midst of this conversation, what have we heard? We've heard that people have a problem with God and the way he's administering justice. They question his character, and it makes God weary. It, it is, tests the patience of God. Now, at the end of this passage, where God has addressed all of the sin, addressed the injustices, now he's going to explain what he means. And he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. What is the accusation against God in the beginning of the passage? God, you've changed. Look at your word. You're not acting according to the truth that we know. You're not acting and applying the law in a way that we can see and we can perceive. God, it must be that you have changed. And God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Now, you'd think that the remainder of this, this verse would go like this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, sinners don't get away. Right? I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole flow of this passage up to this point. But God introduces an idea that is the greatest hope of all of us in a passage like this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You're not brought to an end. Remember how the book starts? I have loved you. How have you loved us? And God says, Jacob, I have loved I've entered into faithful, covenant-keeping promises that maintain my relationship with you and maintain your existence as a nation. And as we get to the end of a passage on injustice, God says, 
you are not consumed because I am still faithful to my word. I am still faithful to restore you, to redeem you, to purify you, to keep you in relationship with myself. And though your complaints against me may be that I am treating the evil as good, you need to remember that I have brought wicked and evil people into relationship with me because of my faithfulness to the fathers. Now, we're a church in 2023, and we have experienced and we um, remember the coming of Christ at the first. And here's how this text works. There's people looking out at injustice in their day. And God says, I'm going to send a messenger. I'm going to send someone ahead before I arrive to give you knowledge of who I am so that you might be prepared to meet me one day. Because when he comes, he's going to set things right. And we have the very same theological situation as Malachi in 2023. Do you know that? That we look out today. And we have questions about God, how God is administering his justice. And this is no small idea even in the New Testament. So I want to end just by showing you something real quick. Turn to your right to 2 Peter 3. Peter's final letter to the church in the final chapter that he writes talks about the coming day of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll just, we'll read and you'll see all of these same themes, themes that we've seen in Malachi chapter 3 that we're going to deal with in our own day in 2023 as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Here's what Peter says. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now watch the kind of scoffing that they do. Watch what they have to say about God. They'll come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his what? His coming. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What, what is Peter reminding the church of? You want God to come in judgment? Don't you remember how he came? Have you read Genesis? And these people deliberately overlook that God has judged the earth at one time. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that are now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the who? Ungodly. Is God going to miss any of the ungodly? Is God going to miss any sin? Not one. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And this is really the tension in the book of Malachi, isn't it? We want God to do something. And because God is patient, the temptation is to attribute God's patience to his apathy. I'm going to say that again. The temptation, because of his patience, is to attribute to God his apathy over sin and evil. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
How many of you are glad that God didn't judge sin forever and always in 2010? Right? There are some of you who have stories in the last 10 years. God has turned your life around because someone shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you where you discovered your sins could be forgiven and you could be free and your relationship with God restored. Had there been wickedness that had happened the decade prior in this world? There had. And through God's patience, he continues to save. He continues to purify, continues to redeem. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, here's the question. What sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are what? We're waiting. According to his promise to save and to redeem a people, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more injustice but where righteousness dwells. Amen? Father, we pause and confess how often we believe what our circumstances and situations tell us about you. And Father, as a result of this passage here in Malachi, would you redeem and restore our perspective on you that we would count the patience of the Lord as salvation? That as we walk through this life and see injustices that cause our heart to twist and our emotions to heat up, that we would remember that if not for the grace of God and your initiative toward wicked people, we would have no hope before you. But you are a God who restores and redeems and forgives and refines a people to bring them into relationship with you. And may we be a people in this Christmas season as we look forward again to your second coming, that we would be people who would worship you in spirit and in truth, that our eyes would be opened, that the temptations to accuse you and um, neglect to consider your true character as revealed in the word, that those temptations would fall by the wayside and that we would worship you for your goodness toward us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.